All right, this morning we're in Acts chapter 9 again. Uh, Our brother Clay did a wonderful job in preaching to you from Acts chapter 9 last week. Uh, If you have not heard that sermon, I encourage you to go and listen to it. You can listen to it on the podcast. You can listen to it on YouTube, uh, on the church website. Uh, An excellent sermon. But there is so much going on in Acts chapter 9 that I wanted to spend another week there talking about two aspects of unbelief and then self-examination leading to faith. This conversion account of Paul in Acts chapter 9 is the central moment in his life. It is spoken of a number of other times in the book of Acts. Every time later in the book of Acts that he is in front of a major audience and wants to make the case of the gospel, he goes back to talking to them about how he came to salvation. And so this is not a small event. It's a major event that shaped Paul, and then it goes out from there to shape the early church as they understand how God works to bring people to salvation. So let's stand to honor the Lord this morning as we read his word from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed. And entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. This morning we're going to look at a few things here. We're going to focus in on a couple of things. One is two aspects of unbelief, and second, self-examination leading to faith. So first, two aspects of unbelief. In verse 5, Paul asks a question, and a question that we need to examine. When he is struck blind on this road and hears this voice 
of the Lord from heaven. His question is, who are you, Lord? This is not the, the, the response that Stephen had when heaven was open to him previously in chapter 6. He, is, he rejoices. It's something that greatly encourages him because he believes in Jesus and he knows who Jesus is. And the fact that his faith has now been made sight is something that causes him to be joyful. Saul does not believe in Jesus. And when this happens, he doesn't know what is going on. His response is confusion. We need to understand, as, Paul, as Clay spoke to us last week, that Paul's life had been absolutely devoted to Jewish religious tradition. There's lots in the scriptures about Paul describing his training and his devotion to Jewish tradition, but he was devoted to the Pharisees' version of understanding the Old Testament. And their version of understanding the Old Testament passionately had no place for Jesus. They had been rejecting Jesus for years. They were part and parcel to his death, and they wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. And this was Saul's understanding of the scriptures. Um, it was a powerful example. This is a powerful example of one thing that we cannot lose sight of, and that is that to be passionate can also mean to be totally wrong. Paul was absolutely passionate about what he was doing. I mean, he was storming down the road, search warrant in hand. He thought he was doing the work of God for the Pharisees. He was as passionate as a person can be, and he was totally wrong. He's getting stopped in his track by the Lord God. And this is an important lesson for our day, because over and over and over in our day, we are told you should passionately express yourself because as long as you do what you want to do you're going to be able to shape reality to be whatever you want it to be and that passion and uh, this idea of being earnest is all that really matters and if you're really earnest about what you should do and what you want to be then you're going to be able to accomplish and in some mysterious way reshape reality to become whatever you want it to be that is exactly the opposite of what we learn in the Bible. We are taught in the scriptures that good intentions are not enough. Your actions must be aligned with objective truth. Your actions must be aligned with objective truth because Jesus is real. Jesus is real. And if Paul hates Jesus and doesn't want to have anything to do with him and is going to persecute him and live his life in opposition to him, it doesn't change Jesus. Jesus is real. It doesn't matter how zealously Paul does not want to believe in the divine nature of Jesus, this does not change the reality of Jesus. And our country is filled with people that passionately do not believe in Jesus, passionately live their lives in opposition to everything that he has taught, everything that he has said, and believe that they can reshape a reality without Jesus, and they are going to be sadly mistaken. And at some point, they will come face to face with the living Lord God. And for many people, it will be too late because it will be at the throne of judgment. This is so important for us. All of this for Paul is after great spiritual learning, after many, many times of studying the scriptures, years of devotion, many times of, of interacting with the devotion of the early church and the apostles and those people, miracles performed that he has seen. And so the question that we need to ask of Paul is how does Paul get this so wrong about Jesus? After all this learning and all this experience, how is it that he doesn't know who Jesus is when he calls out to him from heaven? 
This would be like a young person growing up in the church as the pastor's kid going to college, to Christian college, and still having no idea, really, who Jesus is. Having every opportunity in the world to understand and believe in Jesus and not getting it right. So the first aspect of unbelief is this. Paul could not believe because he was not born again. And he could not understand the word of God without the spirit of God. Let me say that again. Paul could not believe because he was not born again. And he could not understand the word of God without the spirit of God. I want to read to us Paul's own words later describing this situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 7 through 10. Paul writes about this. The, the natural person or the person that is without the Spirit of God versus the person who is filled with the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Going down to verse 14 and following. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. These sentences are worth spending time on and thinking about. It is a couple of things happening here. First, there is the fact that The things of God, the wisdom of God are hidden. They are secret, meaning we cannot break in to find them. Now, Clay talked about this some last week. God revealing himself, which is exactly what it says in verse 10. These things must be revealed. There has never been a man or woman that has ever lived that because they were smart or because they were powerful or because they were rich, that they were able to break into the things of God to understand who God is because they cannot. The Lord God is other. He is holy. He is separated from us in such a way that we cannot force our way into his presence. He must reveal himself to us, which is exactly what is happening in a dramatic way here in Acts chapter 9. But it's happened with every single Christian in some way. And in your life, though it was not a a beam of light from heaven or an audible voice of Jesus risen from the dead, the Lord revealed himself to you through his word and by his spirit that you might understand who he was. There was a time in your life where you did not understand who he was, and then there was a time in your life where you did understand who he was if you are a Christian. The natural person does not accept teaching from God. The natural person or the person without God's spirit does not understand the things of God. It says they are foolishness to them. This is why when you go to work and start talking to people about Jesus, they say, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And I don't want to hear any more about it because I don't understand what you're talking about and I don't want to hear any more about it. 
That's exactly what is being described here. And every single one of us know what that means. And those of you that came to Christ later in life know what it means that you were one of those people. And then when you came to salvation, you were no longer one of those people because the Lord opened your heart to understand that it's something that you didn't understand before. And so Paul is taking his experience in theological truth and explaining it to us here to the Corinthian church. So they do not believe because they cannot believe. So when all this happened to Paul, he said, who are you, Lord? He doesn't know who God is because he doesn't understand, because he doesn't believe, because he can't believe. To be given access to the mind of God, to know Jesus Christ, we must be born again. Jesus said this very clearly to Nicodemus. And what was happening in the life of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is almost exactly the same thing that we have here. A spiritual leader of Israel, deeply studied in the scriptures, and has no idea what is going on spiritually. When Jesus starts talking to him about being born again, he is clueless. He starts asking very basic questions of, I don't understand what you are talking about. Because the natural man cannot grasp the things of God without the Spirit of God. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Every New Testament author understands the doctrine of regeneration or what it means to be born again. Peter writes about it very clearly in the first chapter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a passage of rejoicing. Blessed be God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with worship. According to his great mercy. That's the exact same thing that it says in Ephesians chapter 2 when he starts talking about this. And he says, according to his great mercy, we come to salvation. It does not say, blessed be God, God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to my great intelligence, or according to my deep study, or according to my role of power, or what, we fill in the blank there. None of us come to salvation because of these things, because if we did we would not be worshiping here. We would instead be congratulating ourselves. We come here and we worship because the root of our salvation is the merciful, gracious work of God in our life. God is merciful and he overflows in mercy. And so when our hearts are burdened for the lost in this world and our family members and our friends that don't know Christ, our hope is not in their intelligence and our hope is not in their strength. Our hope is in the mercy of God, that God is merciful. So according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is regeneration or new life, second life. The first life is our physical life. All of us here are physically alive, but some of you may be spiritually dead, and you cannot cause spiritual life to come about in your life. Paul could not cause spiritual life to come about in his life. Let me read a little bit of some writing by R.C. Sproul. This is just wonderfully clear. A person is either born or not yet born. 
So it is with spiritual rebirth. Rebirth produces new life. It is the beginning of new life, but it is not the total sum of new life. It is the crucial point of transition from spiritual death to spiritual life. A person is never partially born again. He is either regenerate or not regenerate. So we are either spiritually dead or we are spiritually alive. And what I am arguing this morning, because I believe the scriptures teach it very clearly, is that the work of regeneration is something that has become known in, in theology as monergistic. What that means, mono means one, erg means energy, or one energy, or one mover, not two movers. What we see here with Paul is this powerful example of one movement, of God moving and working in his life to redirect the course of his life. Now, after spiritual life comes to Paul, he believes. So let me keep reading. When God regenerates a human soul, when he makes us spiritually alive, we make choices. We believe. We have faith. We cling to Christ. God does not believe for us. Faith is not monergistic. So what is happening here is God acting on the soul and causing spiritual life to be where there was spiritual death. And then Paul reacts to that and he believes this is an act that Paul makes. And we're going to start talking about that here for the next half of the sermon. He believes, he clings to Christ, he makes choices based on the spiritual life imparted to him by God. How does this work out? Let me turn my page here. I've got too many things going on up here. Paul did not even know that he had a problem. In this situation, God creates the scenario that generates this question. Where Paul says, who are you, Lord? And he then supplies an answer to Paul. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul, as he was going down this road beforehand, didn't even know that he had a problem. There have been some of you in this place, in that same situation, where you were going down the road of life and you didn't even realize you had a problem until God majorly got your attention. And that is what is happening in this place because this is not an obscure example. This powerfully clear example that Paul repeats often in his ministry is recorded for us in scripture and God calls us to happen to the central character that is going to be most important in the, the early church and its development so that we can see how the Lord works in all of our lives but this is a dramatic fashion so that we can see it all detailed out and understand what is happening in a less dramatic fashion in all of our lives. So this is something about the work of God in spiritual life and our reaction to it by faith that together we might be saved. Well, there's a second aspect of unbelief that I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about this morning that I think is important from this passage. Something that is, I think, fascinating. It is an important consideration for the way that God works on this road. At least part of the unbelief of Paul in this situation was the fact that he could not see God or hear his voice. And so because of it, he didn't believe. He couldn't see God and he couldn't hear God and so he didn't believe. And when the voice of God and the presence of God broke through in his life, it shattered the reality of what he thought was going on. Therefore, he thought he did not exist. 
There are countless millions of people in this world today that are in the same boat. They believe that since they have not seen Jesus with their eyes and they haven't heard him with their ears, they think he does not exist. Do not millions of people fall into that category? They say, these things, I can't see it and I can't hear it, so it must not exist. And so I want to talk about this a little bit. They think that since there is no, there is no spiritual reality because they cannot perceive it with their eye or hear it with their ear. And I want to challenge this thinking by talking through some basic natural examples. This is a fascinating book. Uh, it's called An Immense World, written by Ed Young. And the the premise of this entire book is that every creature has an understanding of the world around them, their environment, through sensory perception. Yet each creature only perceives a small part of the reality of this world. Each creature's perception of the world feels all-encompassing, and yet it is not. And so what he argues in this book is that if we think that what we can perceive is all that there is, we're very wrong. And he gets into talking about hundreds of different creatures. Talks about light and darkness. The idea that our eye can only see a certain spectrum of light. There's more light out there than what our eye can see. And there are other creatures that can see other aspects of the spectrum of light. And they can function in complete darkness with no problem at all. When we can't see anything. And there's really no one that is foolish enough to think that in the dark, since I can't see it, it doesn't exist. But there are plenty of people that think if the lights are on and I can't see it, it doesn't exist. And part of the premise of this book is there are plenty of creatures on this planet that can see things that you can't see because they have different types of eyes. Noise and silence, that our ears can only hear certain frequencies of sound. Everybody's heard of a dog whistle. You blow a dog whistle, you can't hear a thing. The dog can hear it because he can hear things that you can't hear. And just because you can't hear something doesn't mean it's not making noise. He talks about the richness of what we think is nothingness. We have a terrible sense of smell. There's a reason why they bring out the dogs to, to follow someone's scent because they can smell things that we can't smell. That they can... There are animals in this world that can perceive magnetism and they're able to follow routes of migration because they have an interior compass. Their people can't find their way to Walmart. They have, it has nothing to do with magnetism. And so animals are fascinating. I want to read a little bit to you from this because it's so interesting. We cannot sense the faint electric fields that sharks and platypuses can. We are not privy to the magnetic fields that robins and sea turtles detect. We can't trace the invisible trail of a swimming fish the way a seal can. We can't feel the air currents created by a buzzing fly the way a wandering spider does. Our ears cannot hear the ultrasonic calls of rodents and hummingbirds or the infrasonic calls of elephants and whales. Our eyes cannot see the infrared radiation that rattlesnakes detect or the ultraviolet light that the birds and the bees can sense. Even when animals share the same senses with us, their environment can be very different. There are animals that can hear sounds in what seems to us to be perfect silence. They can see colors in what looks like total darkness and sense vibration in what feels to us like complete stillness. Now, what is my point in saying all this? The point is this. Just because you cannot readily see, hear, or touch God does not mean that he does not exist. Okay? Just because you cannot readily see, hear, or touch God does not mean that he does not exist. 
There are countless natural realities that we cannot perceive with our senses that are very real. And scientifically, you can prove them. When we get into the spiritual realm, I have never asked a single person, do you have a soul? And got the response that, no, I have no soul. I've, I've never met a person that didn't think there was something that animated them that was more than the sum of their bones and blood and guts. You have a soul, but no one can see a soul. You can't hear a soul. You can't, there's something unique there. It's something that animates every single one of us, but it is something that is spiritual. And we cannot lay our hands readily on the spiritual unless it is reve- excuse me, revealed to us by God. And so all throughout the scriptures, we have revealing of the things of God so that we can see a glimpse of what God is doing that we cannot normally see. All right, I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna keep moving. The second part of this is self-examination leading to faith. So Paul is confronted by this previously unseen reality of Jesus our Lord, asks, who are you, Lord? And he is then blinded by God and brought to a humble place. He comes from his high-riding, proud platform to this immediate dead stop of humility. And in verse 9, I want us to to not miss this because it's very important. Verse 9, for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. When you deny the reality of God and the Lord comes breaking into your reality to get your attention, it is usually in a way that's going to stop you dead in your tracks. And this can happen in many different ways. But for Paul here, he is blind. And then he chooses to quarantine himself off. He could have just turned right back around and said, take me back to Jerusalem. I'm going to fight this thing even harder. But he hears the voice of the Lord. There is new spiritual life in him. And so he takes no food and water, and we see in verse 11 that he is also praying. He takes three days of intense self-examination, alone, in the dark, in prayer, reconsidering all of his life. It is a time to reassess what he believes and how he is living. He takes this very seriously. He goes from a blinding light and a booming voice on the road to Damascus to solitude, in the gentle, quiet voice of the Holy Spirit. I believe that God often works in a similar way in our lives. Those of us that have much, many years behind us know that often the Lord gets our attention through dramatic action, either some near-death experience or some dramatic failure or time in jail or a terrifying experience. I've heard the testimony of many people in this church that came to Christ through many years of drug abuse and then finally some terrifying experience that caused them to put it down and they knew it was something of the Lord intervening in their life. Cutting words from a trusted loved one, the death of a near person, something that causes us to stop and reassess our situation. I want to ask you this morning, when the Lord breaks into your life and begins to work in a powerful way, do you listen? Do you stop? Do you fast? Do you consider? Do you take time alone? Do you wait? Or do you just turn up the music and make more excuses and just charge on ahead, pressing past what the Lord is doing in your life? The Lord will continue to pursue those who are His until He brings them to Himself But in the mystery of salvation, God acts and we must react by faith. And so when the Lord acts in our life, 
We must react by faith. We must believe. It is right to take quiet time to go to the mountains, literally, when you have a big decision to make or where you feel like your life is desperately out of order and something needs to happen. To be quiet before the Lord in fasting and in prayer, asking for the Lord to reveal to you what you ought to do at this time. And in this case, he brings Ananias to him and also illumines the scripture. Paul is blind at this point. He can't read the Bible, but there's much of the scripture in his heart already. And so what happens is not that he's reading more of the scripture, but the spirit of God is working in his heart to put the pieces together in a way that he's never seen them put together before. And he goes out from this place believing. He goes out in latter verses 20 uh, and following proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God. He goes into this room cursing God and persecuting Christians and he goes out proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God because he has heard the voice of the Lord. Do you create times in your life for quiet devotion? Do you open your Bible and fast and pray and seek God over major decisions in your life? I pray that from what happens here with Paul and some of the things that I've said this morning, you may learn from the actions of God in Paul's life. That you may believe in the reality of Jesus Christ. That you may walk in obedience to his commands. That you may make time to be alone and to consider the purposes of God in your life. That you might then go out and obey and walk in those ways. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together this morning. I thank you for your word and for the, the, just the powerful account of you breaking in and bringing new life to Paul, to Saul, a man who, with much learning, had no understanding of Jesus. But Lord, you bring him to yourself, and he believes, and he obeys, and he goes out with a new passion, new life. That which was foolishness to him days before becomes the great driving passion of his life. And Lord, I pray that it would be so with us. Uh, Lord, I pray for every person here that may not yet believe in Christ Jesus, that you would bring new life to their heart, that they would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those that are struggling with the reality of God because they cannot see him with their eyes or hear him with their ears, that they would by faith believe that God exists. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our midst and that as you are trying to get our attention, as you are working to get our attention, that we would not struggle against you until we are disciplined. But instead, Lord, that we would quickly hear your voice and that we would be still before you and quiet before your word and before your spirit, that we might hear your words, believe, and follow after you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.